0: We're going to be doing part 15 of our series on the Old Testament. And my title today is why idolatry is such a big theme in the Old Testament. Last week, Anne was looking at history and archaeology and how it links in with the Bible and how we see so much of a connection between what was written in the Bible, which is real history and what we can actually dig up. And when we, when we look at what we can dig up, we find A lot of idols, a lot of references to God. And when we read the Old Testament, we see this is a big theme as well. So today, I'd like to really look at this theme and see why it is so important and how it relates to us. But first of all, a couple of stories. In the novel Sense and Sensibility, you may have seen the movie or read the novel, but there's a heroine. Um, Marianne who's lying in her bed with a fever dying and the hero Colonel Brandon who's in love with her of course he is pacing up and down outside the door and then eventually her sister comes out and he says I want something to do give me something to do give me a work to do and they illustrated to me how human nature hates being out of control we can't stand it when there's something bad happening and we are unable to do anything about it. Uh, I don't know if, if any of you like being in a situation where you're out of control. Probably you really, you really detest it. Um, and um, I'll give you another example many people are afraid of flying i mean what's to be afraid of being in in an aluminum tube five miles up in the sky and if something goes wrong there's absolutely nothing you can do about it (laughs) but the thing is that it's statistically safer than driving a car yet because we're completely out of control we have a fear of it i tell you a story from a number of years back um I, I, one of my friends was working at the uh, airport training facility near Heathrow Airport in the UK, and he had access to the huge flight simulators there. they would use to train pilots. And there was a flight simulator for a 747 jumbo jet, and he managed to get access for him and myself. It was about 1 a.m. in the morning when they had a spare hour, but we went in there and we went in to this amazing cockpit of a, a um, jumbo jet. And it was the real thing. Like it was a real cockpit. We strapped into the pilot seats and it was, um, everything was realistic. It's like that. They moved the whole thing around to simulate movement. You, it was nighttime. So you saw an accurate reflection of what you would see. And um, we, we took off and we were flying around for a bit. And then we had a, a the, uh, a control engineer with us. And uh, he took us up to um, about 50,000 feet. And I said to him, is it possible to roll a jumbo jet? And he said, I've no idea. Uh, why don't you try? So I thought, well, I'll try this. I I played around on a computer flight simulator and I knew roughly what to do. So uh, we started to roll. I went into the roll and uh, something went wrong and we're heading downwards. And we're heading down towards London. And the whole of London is spinning around at nighttime time view of it beneath us and as we're heading down my friend john just he he lost it and he tried to wrestle the controls off me and he was panicking and i was trying to pull the controls off him and eventually i managed to yank him off the controls and somehow got back out of this death dive and managed to put out into a level a level flight um and you can see i'm still here so i succeeded in pulling us out of this. And um, and everything was okay. But that illustrated that even it, though it was a simulation, there's something that in us that just hates this feeling of being out of control. So my goal today is to see why idolatry is one of the big themes underlying the Old Testament and to see how it has a lot to do with control and to see how it relates to us on a daily basis. So, four points. First of all, how idolatry works. Then, how God wants us to relate to him. Then, a theme in the Bible from beginning to end. And finally, living this out daily. So, first of all, how idolatry works. So, it's very common to divide the world into regions that um have a, a a justice guilt culture or um a shame honour culture. And often people will put um Europe and the Americas uh characterise it as a justice guilt and they will characterize um maybe the uh other parts of the world, usually Southeast Asia and Africa have, have being an honour shame culture and this is quite common and it's useful to do this but recently people have realized that this is an oversimplification and there's a third dynamic which is a power fear culture and there's a strong relationship between these things uh the this the the, the power fear culture is um very closely linked to the other things because If you are in a, in a situation where you are, you're dying, you have no power, you have no money, you're dying of hunger, then you're not so worried about uh, begging and, and appearing to, to lack honor or stealing something from someone else that would, would, would be unjust. Yet it gets overridden by this power and this fear. And so it's been noted that, um, that where you have Maybe lack of access to, to good medicine. Uh, maybe there's insecurity of food or other issues. Then there is a more of a power fear culture dynamic that is there that it overrides the other ones. But even the others are conditioned by this. So, for example, justice and guilt don't really make much, um, don't, aren't no nearly as important if there's no force that can bring you to be responsible, bring you to justice if you do something wrong. So if you know that if you do something wrong, you'll be brought to justice, then that makes it much more important for you. And so these things are linked together and it's similar with the honor honor and shame. So these three things are integrated and they're very related to the kind of security of your life at that time in that situation and in the ancient world power and fear were very dominant this is why when it was said in the bible that a person feared god it didn't mean they were in terror of god but that god defined the other categories so if someone fears god then justice has to be taken very seriously and god defines justice And also, honour before humans is not nearly as important as honour before God, if it's God that you fear. Uh, We're going to see today that when idolatry is one of the... This is why idolatry is one of the fundamental themes running through the Old Testament and indeed the whole Bible. So um, this I ought to say that this power... And fear dynamic is very much with us, even in our culture in North America today. And uh, if you pray, for example, for somebody who's sick and they get healed, that might be more important in bringing them to Christ than in trying to reason with them about their sin and their guilt. It's um, all of us have fears, all of us um, are powerless in situations. All of us need external power to help us in our lives. So in many ways, I believe that um, that even in North America, the power-fear culture dynamic is something that is increasing in strength. So let's move on to idolatry. And uh, I want to say that, it's an attempt to gain control by persuading some power to help you. In ancient times, they had a God for everything they wanted to control. I wonder if you can name anything they might want to control to have a God for. If this was a, uh, you were really here in front of me, sitting here, I would ask you and people would come up with answers, but um, you can just think of something, yeah? Weather. Yes, weather. Anything else? Fertility. fertility. Crops. Crops. Yeah. War. Yep. So those are things, rain, war, fertility, health. Those are things which are very important to them. And um, what would happen is um, man or woman would set up some sort of, uh, okay, here's my idol. So this water bottle can be my idol. They'd set this up. And then they would worship it and they would maybe do something for it, give it gifts or do something in order to get this God to do something back to them. So it would be like a way of I'm going to do something for you so that you would do something back for me. And there's a little bit of ambiguity about whether they considered this was the actual God or this was a representation of the God which existed in the spirit world. But whichever they would devote their attention to this physical representation of the God. So um, today, you you and I don't usually set up these in our homes, although some people do. And uh, but we we still have other things that go on in our hearts. So in ancient times, so for example, in Canaan, um, when the Canaanites wanted. Whether the, the weather to be controlled and rain is incredibly important for your crops, they would um, they would worship Baal, and this is this is a statue of Baal that we found, and uh, here's a, another one, a much larger statue of Baal that uh, that they would use for worship, and um, he's, he's by the way his arm is raised to throw a thunderbolt because he's going to bring rain, um, but he's also a useful god for war. He can help you for war as well. So Baal has a consort and his consort is female and she is Astarte, and she is fertility is what she brings. And uh, uh, so again, he's got his arm raised there and uh, he's also, it looks like he's making vegetables grow with his other hand. So an, another issue would be that of war. Uh, it's frightening. It's terrifying, and you need a god who's going to help you with that. Um, I mentioned fertility. Here's another one of Astarte, and uh, she is uh, this fertility goddess. And they wanted to, not just for children, but the animals to reproduce, um, so that the land would be fertile, crops would be grow. Vitally important for them it, to survive and to grow as a nation. So. Um, of course, um even nowadays, people want someone to fall in love with them, and we have no control whether a person's going to fall in love with us and So, the Romans had a god you probably know the name associated with valentine's day and can you think of that god's name with a bow it's Cupid, and Cupid's going to shoot a bow, an arrow into the lover's heart and make them fall in love with you and uh <coughs> that was um there was another God there to control something that we cannot control. So if I want to summarize how idolatry works, we want certain things that we cannot get directly. So we try to manipulate a deity to get what we want. So here's my little visual. Um, we have a God and we We worship this God in order to get good things, and those good things we want this response of good things and people would would um, use all sorts of means to to manipulate their God because they wanted to make the God come up with the good things so you can think of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel with the the uh priest of Baal trying to make him um, uh, bring bring fire. And they even cut themselves, hoping that their god would have pity on them when he saw them bleeding, trying to manipulate their god. And uh, the Canaanites were very cruel, and they believed in very cruel gods. And they thought that if they were to do cruel things, it would make the gods please so they would even kill their own babies we won't go into the details about how this worked but they felt that that killing their own babies would in fact please the gods so they would get what they wanted in return and it's tragic that in ezekiel twenty three thirty seven we read that the israelites even descended to the point of sacrificing their children to the god Molech. So if this is the wrong way of worshipping God, and I put God in there with a capital G because this is a way that people can try and worship the true God, but in a way as if this God is an idol. So I'm going to ask you then, how does God want us to relate to him? So if this is idolatry, how does he want us to relate? And today I'm going to take a couple of main passages um, of Scripture, um, but it's actually a theme that goes right the way through the Bible. So here is a passage in Deuteronomy, which I think just so well sums it up. Um, And there's a lot of... uh, I want to get it all on one screen to capture it, so there's going to be quite a bit of writing on this one screen, but bear with me. The Lord will have compassion on his people will change his plans concerning his servants when he sees that their power has disappeared and that no one is left, whether confined or set free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in whom they sought security, who ate the best of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise and help you. Let them be your refuge. So here we have a situation where God is saying, I'm going to have compassion when I see that your strategy for getting security from your God has not worked out. So verse 36 started, The Lord will have compassion on his people when... And so 37 is when this happens. And then what happens as a result here, 39... See now that I, indeed, I am he, says the Lord, and there is no other God besides me. I take life and give life. I break and heal and none can resist my power. So God is saying, I'm sovereign. You can't manipulate me like you do these other, you try these other gods. You can't twist my arm to make, make me behave in a particular way. The way God wants us to relate to him is through love and trust. And this is, this is critical here. This is through, he wants us to worship him because we trust him, because we love him. To worship him, not in order to get something out of him, to make him give us the things we want, but we love him and we trust him. We don't worship him in order to get him to give us the good things in this life. And uh like for example, uh, if I if I read the Bible for an hour every day and put on lots of worship songs, maybe God will answer my prayer and give me that job I want. You know that kind of thinking. That's the manipulative idea. He wants us to worship him uh, because he loves us and will give us what is good. So our response is contentment with what he gives us. As a wonderful expression that Job uses, Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, in Job 13.15. So Job's attitude is completely opposite to that of idolatry. It's not, I'll trust him um, so that he keeps me alive, but Whatever he does, I know it's for my good because I know he cares so much for me. And uh, it's so important to get this or we'll be carrying a burden for life. Uh, of course, um, uh, we want God to love us back. We want, you know, we want all of these things, but w- worship is when we, we, believe God says when he says he loves us we believe him Um, think of it like this if you've got a friend who's only nice to you when they want something from you uh, how does that make you feel it makes you feel you're being treated like an object and that's how God feels if we treat him in this kind of way so I want to suggest then two ways of worshipping God and these two ways are um as a means of gaining control or in trusting adoration. And so um here's uh, here's um my picture of how it should be what God desires, our worship of Him is a motive of loving relationship, and then what we cut back is a trusting acceptance of whatever God chooses to provide for us. Um, now God does want us to ask for things. Um, so he just, he just uh, doesn't want us to be demanding and trying to force him to do it. You know, those of you who have children, well, of course you want your children to ask for things, but you don't want it when they try and force you to give it to them. You want, you want them to ask and you want the joy of giving them things. And what God wants is us to believe that he's a good father. He wants us to just know that he loves us and that we know that if we ask for something and it's good, he will give it to us. That is crucial. And so that is what true worship is rather than idolatrous worship. So between these two things, there is a fundamental tension. So we've looked at how idolatry works this this method of, of, of manipulation, and we've looked at the positive, how God wants us to relate to him. And now I'm going to look at a lot more scripture and we're going to see this theme in the Bible from beginning to end and then end with looking at how it relates to us daily. So um, let's do a quick trip now and I'm just picking some highlights um, and I've I've done like rather a silly alliteration. I don't usually do this, but I picked a letter for each one. So Adam and Eve, we have them, God giving them every good thing, but the serpent tempts them to believe that God really doesn't have their best interest. They can't trust him. They can't trust that he's a a, a, a um a kind God. And so in effect. They're worshipping the serpent. They're giving honour to the serpent instead of to God. And then we have the Tower of Babel. What happens there is God says to them, the people after the flood, he says, spread out over the whole earth. I will take care of you. Just spread out. But they don't trust God. They don't believe that this is in their best interest. And they say, no, we're going to stick together and then we're going to make a name for ourselves. And uh of course this doesn't go well and uh, the uh the the irony is that they don't make a name for themselves but we have like an opposite story with see Sarah and Abraham and Sarah and Abraham God says do the opposite leave this place that's trying to keep control leave it and just go and cast let let me tell you where to go and i will make a name for you and i will give you a child and um, that's my C for child. And they trusted him, and they worshipped him, and he gave them, and he made made Abraham's name great, and Sarah. So even though there was a 25-year wait at one point, yet they still believed that God was the kind of God that loved them. And then we have, the um, uh, story moves on, we have the the nation of israel in egypt coming out of egypt and this is question are they going to worship the true god or are going to are they going to worship um something that they can physically see like you know they can actually physically see and manipulate not this invisible god and they decide they're going to go for the golden calf and i couldn't find a d in there except for the d in golden so this is my d uh worshiping the golden calf because they could physically see it and they could um give it their worship then we have um, an interesting story where during the time of the judges there is a the, the judge is eli and the israelites are having trouble in their battles they're being defeated by the philistines and they get this idea that if they were to take the ark of the covenant with them into battle then that would force god's hand because god then would have to make them win the battle, so they 're treating actually the Ark of the Covenant as an idol, even though God doesn 't have any idols that 's the closest they can get. They take it out into battle with them, and um, so what of course god God hates attempts to manipulate and control him and the amazing story is that he absolutely refused to be treated in this way and allowed the philistines to capture the ark of the covenant they didn't keep it for long because they realized it wasn't going well for them to keep it and they sent it back again but um, that's quite a story but the key idea here is israel they're worshipping the true god but they're thinking control they're thinking idol there's another story um, as we're moving through beginning the period of the kings we have Saul and um, there's a place where Saul is the nation's about to be attacked again by the Philistines and Saul is um, getting ready to fight them and Samuel says don't fight them until I've come and we've worshipped God and Saul is getting upset because it's not Samuel hasn't arrived yet, and so he decides he's going to do a sacrifice himself. He does a sacrifice, and God is very angry with him because um, he's treating the sacrifice like it's a talisman, like it's like some magic charm. He's not thinking at relationship with God. He's thinking, oh, let's do this. It doesn't really matter how it gets done, whether it's Samuel or I'm just going to do this, and this will magically make we win the battle. And, of course, it doesn't because it's not. It's treating God as if he can be manipulated in this way, um, the opposite story is with David. David is described as a man after God's own heart because throughout First um, and Second Samuel, you see uh, a, the tension between Saul, who's who's thinking in an idolatrous way and taking control, and David, who is willing not to take control, like even when he has the, the ability to kill Saul. He says, no, I must allow God to have control here. And so even though David was very flawed in many ways, and the Bible's open about recording that, he did trust God rather than idols. Um, We go right the way through. There's lots more stories, but go right the way through to the time of Jesus in the New Testament. And we see something very interesting happened with the Jews at that time. I needed an H, so I'm calling them Hebrews. Um, What happened at that time, um, they wanted to be released from the Romans. And what they felt was that they got this covenant with God, this law with God. And if they were to keep all the commands of the law excessively, you know, if God said do this, they're going to do even more. Then God would have to come through for them and free them from the Romans. So, so for example, laws about the Sabbath were just excessively detailed and all of the extra things they'd added in that Jesus really confronted them about and said, these are man's laws, not God's laws. And what was behind that was this belief that they could control God even, just even using God's laws to them by, by using them as a tool to manipulate God. And then lastly... Um, i i'm going to use the in greek jesus is spelt with an i at the beginning jesus and jesus is the ultimate example because um he he completely gave himself to the will of the father when he hung on the cross it was the opposite of trying to to, to take power it was just giving himself submit in submission to the father and um uh he He comes to us and he says to us, it's not about your performance persuading God, just trust me. So Jesus comes to us and says, I trust my love. My love to you is better than all of these powerless idols. So some very quick themes. I mean, this is just very, there are are hundreds of examples through the Bible, but I wanted to show you how it pervades Uh, through the bible i mean even jesus three temptations when satan came and tempted him if you look at them they were all three of them were attempts to take control they were actually attempts at idolatry the last one was very explicit you know bow down and worship me Uh, but the, the others again were attempts to take control and not to trust so um Let's then look at the positive side of the themes in the Bible. And there's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 20. And I'm going to go through um, uh, three three scriptures now um, before we end and trying to give us this positive note to end on. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we depend on the Lord our God. They will fall down but we will stand firm. It's just so beautiful, this statement of trust in God. And then um, there's a wonderful story in 2 Chronicles 14 of King Asa. And King Asa um, was, um, they were, the, the nation was being attacked by a foreign army. And he's just feeling like, how are we going to, we have a tiny army, how are we going to possibly defeat them? And he, Praise to God, a beautiful prayer. Um, well, this is the prayer here that we get, the the song, We Rest on the Our Shield and Our Defender, from. Uh, this beautiful song, and here it is. I just love this. Um, actually, the, I mean, this is a prayer in this form. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many... Or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. I just think this is beautiful. This is so this really touches me deeply because this is the this is the statement of saying I have no power and And I think often we can resonate with this. We're in a situation. I've got no power. I can't do anything. I'm powerless, God. And we can bring this prayer to God. Lord, I'm going to go in your name here. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to rest on you because it's nothing for you to help. Whether I'm strong or I'm weak, you can help me. I'm going to surrender to your power in this situation. Just such a wonderful prayer of trust. And here's another one that I just love. It's just so beautiful. Just touches me very deeply. This is a similar situation um, in uh, Second Chronicles. King Jehoshaphat, once again, huge army coming against him, feeling powerless. And this is beautiful prayer he brings. Our God, we are powerless against this huge army that attacks us. We don't know what we should do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah were standing before the Lord, along with their infants, wives and children. He said, pay attention, all you people of Judah, residents of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says to you. Don't be afraid and don't panic because of this huge army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. So my prayer today is that all of us worship God because we love him, because we trust him. Not as a way of trying to make him give us the things that we want, but because we trust that he's a good father and he will give these things to us. So where have we been today? We've looked at how idolatry works. We've looked at how God wants us to relate to him. And then we've looked at this theme in the Bible from beginning to end, both positively and negatively, where how, how people have worshipped God in good and bad ways. And so now I'd like to look at living this out daily. So the first thing, and this is my, this is my final slide now. The first thing is that this is a test of our faith. And sometimes God deliberately puts us in a situation where we are out of control. Um, it might be financial. It might be medical. It might be relational. And the question is, How am I going to respond to this test? And I don't know, maybe some of you are going through this right now. Maybe you are in a situation in your life where you are feeling powerless. There's something that's happened and you just have no power in this in your life. And this is a test of faith. And the amazing thing is this is an opportunity to grow. This is an opportunity to develop. If Sarah and Abraham hadn't had those years of of testing, they wouldn't have been able to demonstrate such incredible faith to God that came to fruit in the end. And so this is an opportunity to learn something about God. And I want to say that only two things are really important in this world. God is all powerful and he loves me. And if those two things are true, what do I have to worry about? And we don't really know this until we have been through it. You may say, oh, Andrew, that's a great sermon. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I can see, you know, this is how we should worship God. But, you know, if you've been through this, you will relate to today differently. You'll say, yeah, I I went through something like that and I just had to trust God. And yeah, yeah, he came through for me. It was tough, but I learned something. I learned that he's trustworthy. And uh, he says, um, don't fear, come to me and trust me. And so my challenge to you today, I don't know what you're going through, but my challenge to you is, will you trust him? And this isn't uh, situation, you know, if I, if I'm good enough, if I'm a good enough Christian and do this and this and this and spend time in my devotion and so on, um, maybe he'll answer this. No, God doesn't like that kind of manipulation. It's not actually, it's good, of course, to spend time with him, but don't do that because you think it will make God answer your prayer better. Come to him because you are his child, because He's given you Jesus. Why would he deny you any good thing? So I'd like to end with a practical exercise right now. I'd like you to think of what your biggest challenge is right now in 2021. What is the biggest challenge you are facing? What area of your life are you feeling powerless in right now? And we're going to pray in a moment. And in our prayer, I'm going to give a gap. And I want you to substitute in there what your prayer for God is. In a way that just gives it to him in trust, believing that he's a good father. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are so good. Thank you that your love for us is so extraordinary. It's so amazing that with us bringing nothing to you, you should give us your own son, the most precious thing you could give us. Thank you, God. Thank you you have such a destiny for us. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. And we want to bring something to you right now. Just bring whatever it is to God. We give this to you. We give it to you. We pray, God, please hear us and provide for us in this situation as a good father, because we are your child. Thank you, God, for this wonderful, wonderful relationship we have with you. Amen. Amen. Ah, oh, this is just such a I just love this this message. I just love this this um this teaching from the scripture because it's so important. It's so it so settles my heart to go through these things. And I hope it does with you.